we thank you so much that we can be in your presence, that we can gather together in your name. And Father, I just ask for the next 40 minutes or so that I will decrease and that you will increase. Lord, I pray that your word becomes alive to us. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. So we're going on now in James, starting with the verses 19 through 25. He's moving past trials and temptation, and now I believe James is wanting us to be receptive, receptive to his word. Starting with verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of it. All moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. I hope this morning you want to be blessed in everything you do. Can anyone say amen? All right. So, my first thought on this was, all right, I think J.D. did this on purpose. He's been talking to Leanne. No? Okay. Because I think if there was any verses I could teach on that I fail the most in, it would be these first few verses this morning. So I come before you humbly and going to make an attempt to communicate what James is communicating to us. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, again, a term of endearment. He says, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I think you would admit that it's very important to be able to communicate. And uh, it's hard to listen and talk at the same time. Have you ever tried it? It's darn near impossible. But I think there's so many things that goes into communicating effectively. And I I was just looking at some things. This is some uh, transcripts from actual trials. This was in Massachusetts. And they printed these following questions that were actually asked of a witness. And I thought they were kind of cute. But the first question was, were you alone or by yourself? Another question was, was it you or your younger brother who was killed in the war? Another one was, you were there until you left. Is that true? (laughs) Debbie, I always love how you appreciate my humor. (laughs) The other one is, can you describe the individual? Answer, he was about medium height and had a beard. Question, was he male or female? (laughs) Then finally it says, 
Doctor, how many autopsies have you performed on dead people? Answer, all my autopsies were performed on dead people. <laughs> you know, so I think we do need to understand the importance of listening. And to be quick to listen and slow to speak. You know, usually I, unfortunately, am just the opposite of that. I want to talk all the time. And it's hard to listen when you're talking all the time. And this is, this is, this is something that I know Leanne has been praying for me. And I pray a lot myself. That, because just think of how important it is. Don't you love a good listener? Someone you can talk to and someone who's attentive to what you're saying and they're just taking it all in and they're not just trying to interject in every other word you say and just how important that is. And I think that's a lot what James is, is trying to get across to us now is being quick to listen because it's so important to be a good listener. This Not this last week, but the week before, Leanne and I went up to Chicago and for six days, we stayed with our grandchildren. And Cohen is five, going to be six. And York is four, and going to, or no, three, and going to be four. And, and so for six days, uh, while their parents were in California, we spent the whole time with them. And it was, it was a lot of fun. But I, along with Lance and Jamie, were praying nothing happened on that plane on the way home. I was ready to go home, but I loved the time we were there. But one of the nights, and they live in Mount Prospect, which is a little bit north of O'Hare and, and in, a, in a pretty good part of suburb Chicago. But one of the nights, one of the great things about it, though, they did live right across from a wave pool. And that, that was uh, a good way to spend the afternoons. And they also had a big playground across from, from their house. And... So one of the nights we took them over in the playground. Of course, it was hot, and so we didn't do that often. But uh, we were over at the playground, and my son Cohen likes to talk. I think he gets that from Grandma, but, you know, probably not. But Cohen likes to talk a lot, and he's, he can be a little dutchy at times, too. And, you, you know, you, you want to make sure you listen good. And, and uh, while we were at the playground... There's a young man that came over, and Cohen began to talk to him. And this was a young teenager, and of course, being Chicago and, and being the attentive grandparent, you know, I'm keeping a close eye on this. I mean, the day and age we live in, it's very important to watch who's around your kids or grandkids. And I was amazed at this young man because he had the gift of listening like no one I've ever known. And he listened to every word that Colin would say. And, and then, you know, at the right time, he would interject something to him. And just, you know, I could tell Colin was beaming as he was talking to him. Well, to make a long story short, his, um, another people they were with was petting our dogs. And we came to find out they were there. They had been to church that night and came over. And this young man was a young Christian. And it was, for me, I pray for my grandkids because, you know, Lance has been angry at God since he was 14. And uh, my prayer has even been that the Lord will reach Lance through his grandkids. And I just saw 
as Cohen, his eyes lighting up as he was talking to this young man, the thing that Cohen was drawn to more than anything, of course, was that this young man was listening to him, but he had the Lord in him. And that was, you know, I, I just can't go on to how that impressed me. And here was this, this young man, probably 14 or 15 years old, and I learned a lot from him from that minute, just how important it is to be a good listener. So he says we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Slow to become angry. I think, hmm, why? You know, slow to become angry. My first thought, to be honest with you, when I was looking at these verses, was that, okay, I want to emphasize the fact that James says that it's, he doesn't say never become angry. You know? He says slow to become angry. And then he explains that and he says, because human anger, notice he says human anger, does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So James is telling us that we need to be slow in our anger. Why? Because if you're like me, you look kind of stupid when you're mad. And you spit a lot, and you don't get what you're trying to say out, and, and it just doesn't produce good things in our life. Well, one way I was looking at it, though, but you know, there's things in me that makes, there's things I get mad at that I think's kind of a righteous anger. I mean, none of us could have watched the news over the last few days and not feel anger. Did any of you feel anger when you saw what happened? Where, I mean, I was very angry when I saw that, and I saw the victims of the families. And, and you know, I don't even have to tell you what I'm talking about. I don't think there's a person in here that says, what's he talking about? But where a madman goes into a movie theater and just begins shooting at random, killing men, women, children, six-year-old child. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, that makes me so angry. And I had my own little list, too, that I could say things that really make me angry. And then God has a funny way of working with us, you know. And last night I was watching, I think it was 48 Hours Mystery, 48 Hours, and they had a special on the shootings. And they interviewed one man in the hospital. He had been shot through the shoulder. First thing, he was, he was a shotgun. Shot, he shot him in his foot with a shotgun. Later on, came back, shot his friend, shot him through the shoulder. And for the rest of his life, he's going to deal with shrapnel in his chest. And I don't know about you, but I think that would tick me off. You know? And they began to interview this man and I can't remember if they had asked him about anger or if he just volunteered it. I don't remember the specifics of that. But what blew me away was here this man began to talk about how he wasn't angry. And he got my attention. He wasn't angry that this, this man tried to kill him at point blank range tried to kill him and he wasn't anger and he went on to explain himself and he says you know he says I pray for him he goes 
He goes, when he came in that movie theater, he goes, this, this guy was on the front row. He goes, I felt the presence of evil. And when I looked at him, I could feel the evil coming out of him. And he said, he said, could you imagine the war in his soul and how far taken over he's become? I pray for him. And I thought, wow. It just kind of put in perspective all the anger in my life because I'm usually pretty aware. You know, we're usually pretty aware when we get angry needlessly and try to repent. I, I hope we do. I try. But there's other things in my life I've held on to because I felt justified by it. I mean, I certainly know God has to be angry at this. But what I learned in that, and coming back to the, these verses again, slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And I thought, that so fits these verses. You see, none of the anger I've held on to in my life justifies it only hurts me. I mean, we have to trust God. I have to trust God that this man, and I believe that this man that did these things will receive punishment. But he can also receive salvation. And those are things that's hard to pray for, isn't it? But I think back even to the Apostle, Apostle Paul, who thought he was doing God a favor by killing Christians. And became used by God by any more than any other human in Scripture. And I think, you see, we don't really understand the providence of God. And so why our human anger doesn't do anything to produce the righteousness that God desires. And I saw so much of myself in this one man that showed forgiveness and compassion in the midst of all his pain and suffering. And he goes on to say, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planting, planted in you, which can save you. And I'm thinking in there too, Therefore, get rid of. That calls for an action says to get rid of is, is basically is, is the mean to lay aside or to cast off. So James is saying, you know, therefore cast off all this moral filth. This filth, this, this, this defilement that's within us. This evil. The evil that is so prevalent. And, and I think, you know, it doesn't it doesn't take long if we ever watch the nightly news to see the evil that's in this world. I think Steve mentioned it this morning. It is so prevalent. But I think the hard part is to see the evilness that is so prevalent in our own hearts as Christians. Because we want to look at the evil in the world and pass our own evilness. 
And so James is saying to make a determined effort to get rid of the, the moral impurities, the malice. He may have in mind a residue of the wickedness that remains in us or, or just whatever's in us. He says, get rid of that. Get rid of that. Because he wants us to have victory over the impurity and the evil. And James says, get rid of the moral filth. And then humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. I think that responds a lot to God's word, responding to it with humility and submission. It's bringing back the transformation that in Romans, in the words of Romans 8.29, it says, conformed to the image of his son. And so James is going on, he says, get rid of this moral filth, humbly accept, respond to God's word with humility, with meekness, not with pride, but to accept, to grab hold of, to take by the hand this word that's planted in you. And I, I really believe this word planted in you is, is this, this implanted by nature, this, this God implantment. That we have his word planted in us if we're his. If the soil is good, the seed will grow. And so when we, when we give our lives to Christ, he implants us with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I can remember for a lot of my life that the Bible itself was a good book that I ought to read sometime. And when I, when I gave my life to Christ, it became the Word of God to me. And I can't explain that, except that he did that, I didn't. And so within us... He implants his word. And he's asking us now that we can take actions because we can choose to let the evil within us rule, even as Christians. But he's saying, humbly accept, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. That can be a little confusing with humbly accepting the word in you, which can save you. Because, and I'm not going to go into a lot of depth in that, but I know that you can, to what saves us is our belief in Christ and nothing else. And I want to make that point very, very strong. Now, is he talking about saving us from our, from our own destructions? Is it, what, what is James talking about in that, that the word planted in us can save us? But I know this, that if we're in Christ, we are saved. And anything else that I go much deeper with right now is going to confuse me and you, so I'm not going to go a whole lot deeper. I'll let J.D. do that. But I do know that in Christ, we are saved. Can anyone say Amen. I want to make sure you're awake. Going on, he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. 
I think I could very easily forget what I looked like if it wasn't for Facebook. Because sometimes my wife will post pictures of me and I remember. But he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive ourselves. Do not merely listen to the word. I ran across a survey a teacher had done. And this was for, quizzed a group of college-bound juniors and seniors. And this was for a preparation as a Bible as literature course. And so he planned to teach in one of the better high schools in the nation. And so he gave these juniors and seniors this quiz. And here's some of the replies he got from the survey. Sodom and Gomorrah were lovers. Jezebel was Ahab's donkey. The four horsemen appeared on the Acropolis. The Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. Eve was created from an apple. Jesus was baptized by Moses. And finally, Golgotha was the name of the giant who slew the apostle David. And you know, that sounds funny, doesn't it? But you know, this survey also revealed, a different survey I read revealed that one-fourth, 25% of born-again Christians, call themselves born-again Christians, 25% never read the Bible. And the scary part about that is how can you be doers of the word if you don't know what it says? It's impossible. It is impossible to be doers of the word without knowing what it says. And so when we hear God's word, it says do not merely listen to the word and so deceive ourselves. But do what it says. So he says, hearing God's word, knowing and understanding what it says, is no benefit if we don't submit to it. In other words, to just merely know what it says. good example is, I'm using my grandson a lot today. But a few weeks past, we went to Wisconsin Dells. And I have a new favorite water slide. This water slide, I mean, well, I won't go into that. I can get off on bunny trails. But Lance, my son Lance and Cohen, and Cohen's a little guy, we went up all these steps. He, he was fearless. And we were going on down another water slide that you race down. And you have four slots, and you wait for the lifeguard to say, okay, it's your time, because you don't want to run on top of the ones that went before you. And so we get to the top and get ready to go down, and Cohen gets on his mat and flies down. So Lance goes, can I go after him? Lifeguard goes, yeah, go ahead. So he puts his mat down, and it goes down by itself. So it was left to Grandpa to go rescue him. So I got on there, and I went down, and I grabbed him at the bottom, and I looked at him, and I said, now, Cohen, you have to wait for the lifeguard to say, go. He goes, I know, I just couldn't help it. <laughs> and I thought... Is that not so true of our lives? So many times we know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do it 
because we'd rather do our own thing. Is anyone else guilty of that here? And so James is saying, don't just merely listen to the words, but do what it says. He says, don't deceive yourselves because, you know, we're so easily deceived because of our own sinful hearts. And that's, you know, J.D. went into a lot of that last week about the deceitfulness of sin and the temptations. And and we've been studying a lot about that. So I'm not going to go a whole, I know you understand that, that it's so easy to be deceived by Satan and even by our own sinful hearts. And one of the most subtle deception is that we can listen to the scriptures, but, you know, they're kind of optional. We can, we can still do what we want to do. And he goes on and he says, it's like a, like a man who looks at his face in the mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And I think, you know, I think it's kind of funny. He uses the example of a man here. Because... How I want to put this without getting in trouble. I also know, going back to the first few verses we looked at, there's a correlation between the amount of trouble I get into and the amount of times I open my mouth. I, I, I've noticed that. But, you know, I think a woman, by, by nature, pays a little bit more attention to what they look like in a mirror. Is that kind of fair to say? Without getting mad at me? Okay, good. You know, whereas, you know, I can walk around with a great big zit on my nose and not know it unless it hurts, you know, because literally when I I don't pay a whole lot of attention in the mirror and there's many times Leanne will say, do you realize that great big spot you miss shaving? And I go, no. (laughs) She goes, don't you look in the mirror? Yeah, you know. In our house, we even got this little mirror on the big mirror. And that thing's scary. <laughs> I mean, you look in that little mirror and you see all these things in your face you had no idea was there. And I think, I don't want to look at that. <laughs> you know? And so he says, you know, don't merely look in the mirror because afterwards, look at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently, the one who looks deeply deeply into the word he goes on to say but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard but doing it will they will be blessed in what they do so again he's talking about this perfect law that gives freedom and this is going to be some of the ironies in, in the Christian faith that, you know, the cross, which is normally a symbol of weakness and defeat, displays the strength and victory of Christ. And so we normally think of law as limiting freedom, but James, again, is affirming that the law brings freedom. Now, that can be such a contrast. And I think back, and I can remember, I've taught James before, and it was about four or five years ago I t- taught the book of James, and I took this pretty literal, and I went back into Romans, and I, where Paul talks a lot about the law and the freedom. But I think a lot, and, and you can form your own opinion on this, but I think a lot what, what James is talking about here is, is more moral law, but they both apply. That it gives freedom. 
one of the radical concepts of the gospel is that in, in the past, I can remember, I thought I had all this freedom. You know, I was a product of the 60s. Nobody told me what to do. I, want, I did what I wanted to do when I did it, and I was in so much bondage, I had no idea I was in bondage. But before, we're in bondage to sin, and we think of it as being free. And yet, Christ liberated us from that slavery by creating a new heart in us that desires righteousness, and that within us comes the freedom to serve Christ. I remember, remember the old Bob Dylan song, you got to serve somebody. I'd sing it to you, but you'd all leave. But it's so important to know that, that we're going to enslave ourselves to something. But it's the perfect law that gives freedom. And it's, it's, in, it's in being obedient then that gives us the freedom to live our lives. Does that make any sense? I hope it does. John 8, 31 through 32 says, Hold to my teaching, Christ said. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then he goes on, James talks about doing these things. Doing, not forgetting what they had heard, but doing it, and they'll be blessed if they do that. So, here we are, and I've got a confession to make. When I looked at this, and I decided this was what I, well, I mean, I, you know, when uh, J.D. asked me to teach this this morning, I was disappointed. Because I didn't really want to teach these verses. And the reason why is I'm a little confused in them. And to get up here and tell you, as I'm teaching them, I'm a little confused. That's not the best thing in the world, but I'm going to be honest. I taught these same scriptures three or four years ago and didn't have a bit of problem with them. And then I taught these same scriptures a few weeks ago as I've been teaching through James at Trinity Mission. And when I look in the faces of 12 addicts and tell them all they got to do is get rid of the moral filth in their life and start doing the right thing they can kind of look at you like what are you talking about I've tried to do that and so I have been for the last three years in my life in my personal life I've really been struck in this cycle of of understanding God's grace and James itself when we look at James Martin Luther didn't even feel like the book of James should be canonized. He called it a straw gospel because he felt like James was just doing all works. And so when I look at this and, and, and J.D. asked me to teach it, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going to teach what it says the best I can, but I want to try to apply it to my own life. And so, to apply it to my own life, I really believe that James understood that his readers understood grace. And when he's telling his readers to get rid of things, they understood they couldn't do it on their own power. So I want to look at three things this morning 
is that the first thing is that we can't do these verses in our own strength. Because if we try, we're going to fail. And I know last summer I, I, teach, you know, I taught a, a six-week series on grace and really tried to point out to a lot of good people we weren't really good at all, we were really evil, and apart from Christ, we were no different from the world. And that can be hard. And so I've been struggling with this. And then Tuesday morning, I was in a Bible study, and we're studying Second Peter. And all of a sudden, some light bulbs clicked in me on these verses. And so, in Second Peter, I'm going to go there. Because number two, I believe that we can only live the Christian life in God's strength, not our strength. Does that make sense? How can we get rid of all moral filth and evil in our own strength? We can't do it. But in God's strength, because so many times when we teach grace and we talk about this, then we're going in a circle and we're saying, and it seems like, well, what's the use? If I can't rid myself, then what can I do? But here's the good news. In Second Peter... He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. And so this is the good news, is that we can rid ourselves of all moral filth and the evil that's in our hearts. And we can do it by His divine power. Power, which means basically when we give our lives to Christ, He seals us with His Holy Spirit, and then He gives us the power in a new life. And I don't know about you, but I, I read those words, and if I'm just reading and I go, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through life through our knowledge of Him who called us. And I said, you know, I can't do that. I want to say, His divine power. I'm excited about that because no longer can I do it, but He does it. And I think, this is so, this is so eye-opening. And this so explains, because see, James understood that. James understood that his readers, because this is a problem I really believe in the church in America. I don't, I'm not pointing my fingers at anybody here. I point them at me. And I point them because in America, we are so spoiled. You know, we don't know what persecution is. You know, most of us here, the worst persecution we've ever felt would be made fun of a little bit, maybe at work or school or something like that. You know, but James readers understood what it was like not even to have a job because they, they have brought Christ into their lives. Or they understand that maybe they've had to lose their whole family because they profess Christ. And so they understand these things. And when they understand His divine power, they get excited about that. 
And so I'm seeing this, that His divine power gives us everything we need. You know, so many times we walk around and our marriage might be in a mess and we say, Oh God. And we forget that in His power, God has the power to restore our marriages. God has the power for us to overcome our addictions. And He's given us that power as a seal when He planted His Word in us. And so that makes it exciting. It makes it exciting to me. Because I didn't have to do it. And He says... He gives us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us. Now this knowledge is not just a head knowledge. This knowledge is not just knowing who God is. But this knowledge is pertaining to a relationship with God. Knowing God. And you know, how do we know somebody? We know Him by spending time with Him. You know, if Leanne calls me on the phone, I don't have to say, who's this? I could get in big trouble if I said that, I think. She doesn't say, Rod, this is your wife, Leanne. Well, first of all, I know it because it's on the caller ID. But I recognize her voice because we spend time together. You know, if Drew calls me on the phone, I don't have to say, who the heck is this? Because Drew's a friend and we spend time together. And see, when we have this knowledge of God, it's, it's not just head knowledge, but it's knowing Him. Knowing this God that gave us new life. Gave us new life. And that's why it's hard for me to teach or preach and do anything without getting excited about it. Because God has given us His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very and great precious promises. So that through them, through these promises, you may participate in the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Therefore, that's what gave the strength to this man laying in a hospital bed who's bleeding or his wounds are, are, are you know, who was almost killed by a madman to be able to say, I'm praying for him because he's participating in the divine nature of God because he knows the promises that God gives us. And the promises that are in Christ. You know, this book, this Bible, this word is full of promises. And it's all ours. Again, in His divine power. And not only that, He gives us the power to escape the corruptions of this world. We don't have to live in those. And then He goes on, He says... For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, mutual affection. And to mutual affection, love. 
For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. So what he is saying here, Peter is saying, is that this is a lifetime process. And I hope that as Christians, we can look back and see an upward process. Because, see, we're not going to get it all at once. I remember when I first got saved, I thought I did. And it didn't take long to see I didn't. But it's a, a process. And he says, if you possess these qualities, if you're doing these things, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sitting there asking us, you know, do we want to be productive in Christ? Anybody? Anybody want to be productive? Amen. Okay. Does anybody here want to be effective? Okay. How do we do that? Because I honestly believe, and this is where grace comes in. And this is my whole point of this whole message, really. I've got three points, but this is my, my biggest one there. As I look at the church in America, and I see it so ineffective and unproductive. And again, I'm not pointing fingers. But I even look at times in my own life, and, and I think of those times, and, and I think, you know, I want to be productive. I want to be effective for Christ. And I look around, and I don't even know my neighbors. You know? And I look around, and everybody I hang out with is a Christian. Now, I do. I do have the opportunity to work in the jail and different things. And I do feel there's been some production in that. But I look at the church as a whole, and I think, why is the church so unproductive and so ineffective? Why is it in the church that instead of, of seeing the righteousness that God desires, so many times I see self-righteousness, but it's so very seldom I see the righteousness that God desires because I believe that if my, one of my prayers for Harvest Fellowship is that we can be a fellowship that is known by the love of Christ. Because I believe if we become a fellowship that's known by the love of Christ, it's going to be hard to keep people away. Because I believe that in this world today, there is a need for people to know the love of Christ. But so many times we live in our own little worlds and we're ineffective and unproductive all around us because... We can't even socialize with our neighbors half the time. Maybe you're not like me. But that bugs me. And I think, what causes this? And finally, in verse 9, Peter says, But whoever does not have them, in other words, are, if you're not effective and you're not being productive, is nearsighted and blind forgetting that they have been cleansed from past sin. 
And so, in other words, what I believe is wrong in the church today, and I, I don't want to just be one of those going, ah, pointing a finger saying, this is wrong, this is wrong. But in saying this, I want to see, like Montgomery County, what I would love to see is when people drive through here, they can feel something different in the air. Not just from one church, but from those who are in Christ in Montgomery County have such a love for one another, it permeates the, the very atmosphere we live in. And instead of being known as the divorce capital of, of the, the nation, we could be known for the love of Christ. Wouldn't that be something? But you see, the problem is that I believe the number one problem in the church today is that we forget that we've been cleansed from our past sins. In other words, we forget that we're all here and we breathe only because of what Christ did in our lives and that we did nothing to deserve it. You know, going back again, that, that in my life, my life is a lot different today than it was 27 years ago. And when I look at the things that are gone out of my life today, I can, I can see a progress here. But there's still a long way to go. But I'm going to be honest with you, every morning when I wake up, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful grateful to be sober. I have a gratefulness in my heart that I think, you know, every breath I take is from Him. Because I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Christ. He's everything in my life. You wouldn't be here in the same capacity today if it wasn't for Christ. Because Christ has taken our sins and instead of the death we deserve, He gives us life. And I think we should be excited about that. And I think we should be grateful about that. And I think that when we're not, that's what makes us ineffective and unproductive. Because we'll look at these verses and, and we'll look at them and we'll say, well, I've done that. I don't do all those things anymore because I'm different no we're different because Christ gave us a new life not for what we did does that make any sense and so I want to be effective and I want to be productive and so the third point I want to get to and the last point and I won't be long in this is what is power? What is God's divine power? You ever think about that? Because once again, things with God are so much different than they are in the world. I think of power. I could be dangerous with power. I could be a lot like Peter when he says, Lord, what should we do? Have rain fire rain down upon them and destroy them? I could be good at that. I could be like Superman on crack, you know? And just destroying all the evil in the world. And so what I want to do here to end with is kind of describe what divine power is. Because the first point is 
that when we look at these scriptures in James to understand that we can't do it in our own strength. But we can do it in the divine power that God gives us. Okay? But what is this power? So I'm going to go to John 13. And he says... It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. This was the very last evening Jesus was going to spend with his disciples. This was a very important night. There had been a lot of things happening during this night. He'd already come into an argument about who was going to be the greatest. You know, I can see probably... If it had been me, I'd be pretty frustrated at this point. He knew the events, what was going to happen. He says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He says, the evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He knew all things was under his power. He's showing them, and for some reason I left this out, he's showing them the full extent of his love. Earlier on in, in, in verse in chapter 13, he says, I'm going to show the full extent of my love. And now knowing that all things were under his power. Again, I think of, what would I do with power? And this is why Jesus showed us what he did. He got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. In other words, what Jesus did in that moment, showing them the full extent of his love, knowing all power had, was, he was, was his, he washed their feet. Now, that's something else we don't entirely understand. You know, we don't have, when we visit somebody, like if I go visit Mike, he isn't going to say, Rod, sit down, we're going to get your feet washed. You know, it's not something we do now. But remembering back in this time, the roads were pretty dirty, pretty dusty, the animals in it. I mean, people had major toe jam when they came to visit, you know. And the lowest job, really, in that culture, the lowest job you could have was foot washer. If you had slaves, the slave with the lowest seniority got to be foot washer. Now, if you didn't have slaves, then the youngest child was chief foot washer. Now, if you didn't have children then your wife was foot washer. That was the way things went in the culture. And if you didn't have a wife, that meant you were foot washer because it was very important to wash 
somebody's feet, but is also very humbling. And so what Jesus did, which I think was the last major thing he tried to teach his disciples, was that understanding God's divine power means understanding servanthood and putting the needs of others before ourselves. And he goes on, later on he says, when he had finished, in verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I am your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Does that sound familiar? In verse 25, that's exactly how James ends. He says, If we do these things, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing them, they will be blessed in all they do. So to conclude, worship team, come on up. To be honest, if we struggle with the righteous life that God desires, or we're unproductive or ineffective, and get out of your way, there's two reasons. One of two reasons. First reason is we've never given our lives to Christ. Because we cannot have the divine power of Christ if we haven't surrendered our lives to Him. So I just want to encourage you, if you're in this room today, I'm not one that, that really wants you to bow your head and, and, and close your eyes and maybe sneak up your hand, and, because I really believe that's a public thing to do and, and, and it's not something to be ashamed of. And I'm not even going to have an altar call. But if you've never done that, don't leave here today without doing it. See me, see an elder, see your parents, whatever it is. You cannot have the divine power of Christ. You cannot live the Christian life if you've never surrendered to Him. And the second part is if we're ineffective and unproductive, take a look at yourselves. Do some introspection. Do you live your lives in gratefulness, being grateful? for what God has done for you. Not always in our circumstances. Because sometimes we lose jobs. Sometimes we lose loved ones. Sometimes our circumstances are not good. But God has given us this incredible trade. He's traded my sin, His eternal life. What a trade that is. Are we grateful for that, church? Do we live in gratefulness?
That's what you need to ask yourself. In fact, I want to pray real quick before we close. Go ahead and close your eyes. I'm not going to ask anyone to stand up. But if this fits you. Lord, we come before you humbly. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for every man, woman, child in this room. That if we're not being productive and effective in your spirit, in your love. Lord, I pray that we become grateful. Lord, whatever it takes that we begin to see more and more every minute of every day just our complete need for you that we will be desperate a desperate church seeking your face in everything we do and above all things we never forget that our past sins have been forgiven that we and we no longer have to wallow in them but that we live our lives understanding your grace and your mercy We thank you and we praise you. Amen.